Well, good morning once again. My name is Tony Shen. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5 is our text for this morning, and we will get there uh, momentarily. Uh, on your outline, you'll see that the introduction is that we have uh, many layers relating to October 31st. Today is October 31st. Today, this year, October 31st, happens to fall on Sunday. But October 31st has a lot of significance in our culture. For one thing, it is probably most notable that October 31st is Halloween. Right? It's, a, it's a pretty big holiday in our culture. It is, is for sure a big consumer holiday. And so you see people already decorating their houses, uh, the costumes have gotten ready, and all of these other things that uh, are sometimes fun and sometimes uh, not so great. But nonetheless, it, it is Halloween. It is also Reformation Day. Reformation Day uh, is October 31st, and it sort of commemorates the, the, the October 31st of 1517 when Martin Luther, who wrote our hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, posted 95 theses on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. Okay. So it's been over 500 years since the sort of the, I guess, unofficial start of the Protestant Reformation. And we're also going to talk about uh, another holiday, which is uh, more for our Mexican or Latin American friends, uh, Dia de los Muertos. Okay. So there's a lot of different layers that, that, that October 31st has for us. Okay. Uh, the first one I want to talk about is, is Halloween. Okay. The, I thought in reading this particular article online that it was very helpful. So this comes from uh, the Grace to You uh, website, and it is by Travis Allen, written uh, several years ago, called Christians and Halloween. So this is a little background on Halloween. The name Halloween comes from the All Saints Day celebration of the early Christian church, a day set aside for the solemn remembrance of the martyrs. All Hallows' Eve the evening before All Saints Day became, uh, began the time of the remembrance. Okay, so All Hallows Day or All Saints Day is, is uh, November 1st, and then All Saints Eve or All Hallows Eve uh, was the evening before. All Hallows Eve was eventually contracted to Halloween, which became Halloween. As Christianity moved through Europe, it collided with indigenous pagan cultures and confronted established customs. Pagan holidays and festivals were so entrenched that new converts found them to be a stumbling block to their faith. To deal with this problem, the organized church would commonly move a distinctively Christian holiday, like All Saints Day, All Souls Day, to a spot on the calendar that would directly challenge a pagan holiday. The intent was to counter pagan influences and to provide a Christian alternative. But most often, the church only succeeding in sort of Christianizing a pagan ritual. The ritual was still pagan, but mixed with Christian symbolism. And that's what happened to All Saints' Eve. It was the original Halloween alternative. The Celtic people of Europe and Britain were pagan druids whose major celebrations were marked by the seasons. At the end of the year in Northern Europe, people made preparations to ensure winter survival by harvesting the crops and culling the herds, slaughtering animals that wouldn't make it. Life slowed down as winter brought darkness, shorten, shortened days and longer nights, fallow ground, and death. The imagery of death, symbolized by skeletons, 
skulls and the color black remains prominent in today's Halloween celebrations. The pagan Samhain festival celebrated the final harvest death and the onset of winter for three days, October 31st to November 2nd. The Celts believe the, the curtain dividing the living and the dead lifted during Samhain to allow the spirits of the dead to walk among the living, ghosts haunting the earth. Some embrace the season of haunting by engaging in occult practices, such as divination and communication with the dead. They sought divine spirits or demons and the spirits of their ancestors regarding weather forecasts for the coming year, crop expectations, and even romantic prospects. For others, the focus on death, occultism, divination, and the thought of spirits returning to haunt the living fueled ignorant superstitions and fears. They believed spirits were earthbound until they received a proper send-off with treats, possessions, wealth, food, and drink. Spirits who were not suitably treated would then trick those who had neglected them. This fear of haunting only multiplied if that spirit had been offended during its natural lifetime. Okay? Trick-bent spirits were believed to assume grotesque appearances. Some traditions developed which believed wearing a costume to look like a spirit would fool the wandering spirits. Others believed the spirits could be warded off by, by carving a grotesque face into a gourd or root vegetable, for example, the Scottish used turnips, and setting a candle inside it, the jack-o'-lantern. So, this is sort of the roots of Halloween, and it, uh, it was Pope Gregory IV who moved all Saints Day celebration in order to counteract the, 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 the festival of Samhain okay, in the ninth century. So All Saints Day had been a, 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 a life-affirming ceremony and holiday for the Christian church for hundreds of years. We celebrate our everlasting life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Pope Gregory IV uh, moved it in the ninth century because we were trying, we the church that is, we're trying to reach out to a pagan and dark culture, and we were trying to, to make this happen. But uh, so that so Halloween has actually been around sort of as a Christian mixed holiday for for you know a, a millennium, right? Now Halloween did not come to North America until the 1800s, right? Now North America was settled by European colonists in the 1600s. So, but Halloween did not come until the 1800s with Irish and Scottish immigrants. The earlier British settlers, basically the Puritans, the Quakers, and, and other uh, colonialists, were very much against this kind of worship and celebration of the dead and the occult. So that didn't happen in the early centuries of uh, white people settling in North America. So when did Halloween become uh, this thing that we know it today. Well, there's a couple of different aspects of it because, you know, it, it, it was just sort of like, you know, uh, customs and, and the occult and, and those sorts of trick-or-treating and that sort of thing. But, for example, right now we have a highly sexualized culture and Halloween in particular is very sexualized. It's hyper-sexualized. Well, when did that happen? Well, that only happened in the last several decades, in the 1970s, actually, if you, if you didn't know that. It, it, like, before that, it was... It was pretty just not that sexual, but it, it rose up in the gay communities of San Francisco and other major cities. That's really when things be, started becoming so, so sexualized. All right? And 
there's actually a uh, not a not a Christian blog. It, it, it it's a it's a Slate.com article which you can read that uh, sort of goes into the brief history of this. It's it's the title of it is literally called "When Did Halloween Become So Tawdry?" Right? And it was in the 1970s. And then, what about the commercialization of Halloween? Okay, there's a lot of money spent on Halloween. Uh, it just became massively commercialized maybe in the last 20 or 30 years ago. Okay, in the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, it is now said that Halloween is the second most commercial holiday behind only Christmas. Right? We spend a lot of money on Christmas and then we spend you know, somewhat less money on Halloween. I was driving around the neighborhood and, and looking at all the decorations on some of the houses, uh, some of which are quite impressive. And I was also thinking to myself, where do you keep all this stuff? Because the stuff on this one person's or this one family's house uh, would be larger than the storage in just my garage. So I don't know where they're keeping all of this. It's kind of crazy. Okay. All right. So uh, a second layer is Reformation Day. Okay? Martin Luther posted the 95 Theses on the church, uh, castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Okay, 95 theses are 95 statements. He was trying to make a, an argument about the practices of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and he was arguing that some of the practices were not biblical. Okay, were not biblical and, in fact, almost completely against the true and pure gospel. So he intended the 95 Theses not to be uh, sort of like a declaration of independence, that if they caught him, they would hang him and you know, be, he'd be hanged as a, as a traitor or, a, or a, an, a heretic. But he was intending these 95 Theses in order to start a conversation. Right? He wanted to be, continue to be part of the church. He just wanted the church to change. But that's not the way it, it went. So as, as an example, thesis number one, of the 95, translated in English, says this, when our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. It's not just something you do once, it is something that you are continually doing all through your life. However, the Pope and the Catholic Church disagreed with him and eventually put him on trial and excommunicated him. But he survived he was protected by allies, and many others joined him in protesting against unbiblical theology and the practices of the Roman Catholic Church. This movement is now called the Protestant Reformation. So we consider October 31st as Reformation Day. It's important to note that other faithful men had been disagreeing with the official church for many years before that. And in fact, in in 1045, there was a, a split between the Western Church, what we call the Roman Catholic Church, and, and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Okay, so the, the, the church had been disagreeing about a number of different things for, for quite some time. And it wasn't until, uh, sorry, and then uh, in the 1300s and the 1400s, men, for example, like John Wycliffe in, in, in England and Jan Hus in Bohemia, uh, they were greatly concerned about the corruption in the church. Uh, they were also concerned about certain other practices of the church uh, that they wanted to make the gospel and the word of God better known to the, the local peoples. And so even though the church had, had forbidden the, you, the translation of the Bible into any other language besides the official Latin vul, uh, version, the Latin Vulgate, 
these and other men translated the Bible into uh, other languages. So, for example, uh, John Wycliffe uh, was in England. He translated the scriptures into English, and he died a natural death, okay? but his friends who improved on his work were imprisoned, and some of their friends were burned at the stake as heretics with English Bibles tied around their neck. Later, the church had such animus against Wycliffe that uh, it ordered his bones to be dug up and burned and their ashes to be thrown into the river. I mean, that doesn't do anything to him. It's just really disrespectful. Jan Hus was a, a disciple of Wycliffe and also opposed the same unbiblical practices that uh, Wycliffe and Luther opposed. And he was burned at the stake after being promised safe passage at his excommunication trial. Right? So come, we're going to talk about what you believe, you're going to defend yourself, we're going to make charges against you, safe passage. Aha, but then after he was excommunicated, he doesn't have safety anymore, so they burned him at the stake. So sad. So the fact that we are here today holding a worship service in English and reading a Bible in our own language, in English, is due in large part to these brave and faithful souls. Therefore, we celebrate the Reformation. And not only that, we are always reforming because our inherent sinfulness means we must always be vigilant that we ourselves do not stray from true doctrine as given to us in Scripture. So today is Reformation Sunday. Uh, we sang uh, a number of songs relating to God's grace and Jesus dying for us and Jesus being the only way, right? And can it be? My chains fell off. My soul was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. I think anyone who has been saved from his sin by the power of God, by the Lord Jesus, like I get emotional every time that I sing that particular verse in that particular hymn. Right? And as John was sharing with us earlier, A Mighty Fortress was written by Martin Luther himself. And these go toward some of the basic doctrines, we would call them biblical doctrines, but doctrines of the Reformation, which are encompassed in like five Latin phrases that we call the five solas of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, which is that the Bible alone is our highest authority and not councils or popes or any other such thing, but the scriptures alone are our highest authority. Uh, sola gratia, it is by God's grace alone that we are saved. Sola fide, it is through our faith alone and not from works so that none may boast that we are saved. Solus Christus, it is only through Jesus alone that we are saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, says Jesus. And lastly, that our motivation for doing everything is soli deo gloria, for God's glory alone. Okay? That is our highest motivation for everything. Okay. Now with that as some background, let us turn to the text, which I told you was uh, Mark chapter 5. And on your outline we see that verses 21 through 24 are a plea for help. A plea for help. Mark 5, verse 21. 
When Jesus had crossed over again to the boat on the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and on seeing him, Jesus, fell at Jesus' feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And Jesus went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. Okay, this is kind of like a precursor because we're about to have a little interruption in this story. And then we will get back to Jairus' daughter a little bit later in the passage. Uh, Mark typically does this. He, he, he does what is called a Markian sandwich, where he starts one thing and then like, has something else in the middle and then does something else. Uh, and sometimes he does this kind of for narrative or theological purposes, but it is notable that in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke, uh, the events unfold in just the same way. So uh, this is sort of a marking sandwich, and, and, uh, but also just the way that things happened. Okay. So a couple things that we want to notice here. Number one, that the man who came up to Jesus, Jairus, is a synagogue official. Okay, well, synagogues are teaching places, worship places of Jewish people. And now today we think of Jews as those who don't believe in Jesus. But remember, all of the early believers in Jesus were Jewish. Jesus himself is Jewish. He is the Jewish Messiah. We call him Jesus Christ. Christ comes from a Greek word, which is a transliteration of the Hebrew word Messiah. So he's Jesus Messiah or Messiah Jesus, we say Christ Jesus. Okay? So, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. That, that word, by the way, Messiah or, or Christ, means anointed one, okay? one who is anointed. Right? Then we notice that Jairus fell at Jesus' feet. He was imploring him earnestly. Now, this is a posture of begging, but whether Jairus knew it or not, this is also appropriate because this is also a posture of worship. Jesus is, in fact, God. He's the Son of God. So now we pause in the narrative of Jairus' daughter, and we go to uh, the, the next part of the story. And on your outline, it's real blood and a day of the healed. Verses 25 to 34. A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had, and was not helped at all, but had rather grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him. Okay, so let's talk about this poor woman. This woman had had a hemorrhage for 12 years. So a hemorrhage is not entirely explicit in the text, what it's talking about, but it is understood that this was a hemorrhage relating to the fact that she is a woman and that she, her female parts were steadily ble bleeding. Okay? So this is specifically relating to the fact that she is a woman. She was also suffering from this for 12 years. 12 years is a long time to suffer. 12 years, very, very long time to suffer. And not only was she suffering from the hemorrhage itself, but also she had, had endured much at the hands of physicians. Now, we think of medicine and modern medicine as being you know, things that can heal you. Well, 
we have things that can't be healed today, and 2,000 years ago, there were many things that also could not be healed, but they still had physicians. They still had people who, uh, whose job it was to heal people. And in fact, Luke, who wrote the, the book of Acts and the gospel according to Luke, was himself a physician. Okay? So, that she had endured much. It doesn't say what specifically, but there was a lot. And she had not only that, but had, she had not been helped at all, and she had spent all that she had. Okay? So this is, this is a, a very bad situation for her to be in. Not only that, but she would have been kind of a social outcast. Okay? I don't want to delve into this at, at too great a length, but in... The Levitical law, the law that the Jews lived by, uh, there is laws about cleanliness and uncleanliness. Okay, this is a theme that's going to come up with, with regard to Jairus' daughter because blood makes you unclean, death makes you unclean. And specifically, uh, that woman's, that female cycle of blood uh, specifically makes you unclean. Okay? So imagine having a hemorrhage for 12 years and basically being unclean that whole time. Okay? This would make you uh, very, very vulnerable socially. Okay? So this woman is a social outcast. She is economically destitute. She has been suffering for all of this time. Okay? And she thinks to herself, if I could just touch his cloak. What did Jairus ask? Jairus asked, would you lay your hands on my daughter and heal her? But she just says, if, if I could just touch her cloak. Okay. Now there's, there's more that could be said about uh, the, the culture of the times and what Jesus was wearing and what was the particular thing, the tassels of his cloak. Uh, Pastor Matt in his, uh, in his Matthew series uh, which actually dates back almost 10 years, uh, has, has spoken about this at some length. And so I, I commend you to go onto our website and to uh, listen to his, uh, his sermon on, on this passage, the parallel passage in Matthew. But nonetheless, she thinks, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Well, immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. This happened right away, and it was noticeable. Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Okay. So, a couple things here. Uh, Jesus is God. As God, he is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. And maybe not in his human nature, but certainly in his God nature, he is everywhere. So he already knows this. And we shouldn't be tempted to think that uh, just because Jesus sort of like felt power flowing from him and that he uh, asked the question, who touched me, that he somehow doesn't know. Okay? He knows this is just part of him ministering to the crowd. And his disciples said to him, gosh, Lord, you see the crowd pressing in on you and you say, who touched me? So there was a big crowd, and everybody's reaching out, for it, reaching out to him, etc. Okay? They all want to be healed. They all want to be blessed in some way. Why this one woman? Why this one woman, not just everybody? We're going to find out. And he looked around to see the woman who had done this. 
But the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, that is to say that the blood was dried up immediately and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Go in peace. You're healed. Your faith has made you well. So by this we understand that all the crowd that was pushing in on him who were maybe self-interested, maybe they didn't have the same faith that, G that this woman had just to, just to trust in Jesus, just to believe in Jesus. Okay? Just the, the, most, the most minor touch of his cloak, his garments, would be enough to heal her. She believed. And therefore, it was done to her the way that she asked. Okay. Now, faith has made you well. Uh, I want to point out that we have in our culture today many uh, so-called faith healers. And uh, I think they're just charlatans. I think they prey on the weak. I think they prey on women like uh, the physicians did to this poor woman and took their money. And uh, I think that you know most of the, if not all, of the so-called healings are just fake. Okay? Now, there are some documented cases uh, which, you know, and, and we would never want to say, just put God in a box and say that he is not capable of healing or doesn't, doesn't choose to heal, because he can heal whenever he wants. He can do all that he wants according to his holy will. But I think that in our culture, we have these false pastors, these false preachers, who preach false healing, and then they take advantage of the weak in order to do that. Okay? But God can, of course, heal physical illnesses. And then I want to point out another uh, element of this, which is that we don't just suffer from physical illnesses, do we? We also suffer from emotional, spiritual, mental, psychological illnesses. And unlike our current culture, which believes that the physical world is all that there is, we believe that there is a physical world and that there is a spiritual world and that we are beings of, that have a, a, a dual nature that is both physical and spiritual, that is both material and immaterial. So God can also heal the spiritual illnesses. And this is where I want to camp for just a little while and talk about how the story of the woman with the hemorrhage, while that is a physical healing, we can also be thinking about ourselves and people that we love being healed by faith of our spiritual illnesses. Okay? And the spiritual illnesses that we have, and we have you know, massive industries de de uh, dedicated to people's you know, mental and psychological health. Right? Our governments spend money on things like the Department of Mental Health, like our sister Quran works at the LA County Department of Mental Health. Okay? So that there, this, is, this is a real thing. And... You know, I want to, in this, I want to point out this, this helpful book, this helpful book called Future Grace, The Purifying Power of the Promises of God by John Piper. Okay. We have read this in years past in our men's group, more on the men's group a little bit later. Uh, and I have used this book uh, several times in biblical counseling, pastoral counseling with people in the church. Okay. Now, the premise of John Piper's book is that we have received grace in the past, and we know this 
Because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and this happened 2,000 years ago. And so, of course, we want to rely on the grace that has been given to us in the past. Okay? But in addition to that, there's also grace that will happen to us in the future. That is God's gift. And, and what, is God, what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. So we are going to receive unmerited favor from God in the future as well. I mean, the most obvious one is that Jesus is going to come back. And that we, when we die, we are going to go to heaven. Those are kind of like the most obvious things that are going to happen in the future. Okay, but there's other things that he promises uh, in the future. And when we don't believe these things, that is when we tend to have spiritual problems. We tend to have some spiritual problems. Because just imagine, right? Just, just let's think about the, the ultimate end for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is that we are in heaven. And all of the tears are going to be dried. And we are not ever going to have doubts uh, or anything else, any, any anxiety or any depression or any other problems like that, okay? When we are in our glorified state in heaven. So what is the difference between us living in our mortal coil now and in the future? Piper argues that it, a lot of it can be traced to our sinful nature and a lack of belief in the future promises of God. Okay? So, as he goes through the book, and the book is, is fairly lengthy, he uh, pauses at different points in different chapters and talks about different spiritual conditions that, that might, be, might have at the root cause uh, a sense of unbelief. So, for example, anxiety. Okay? Anxiety. Right? And he talks about Matthew chapter 6, 25 through 34, and uh, various different ways. I won't read the passage, but, the, uh, but he says, don't be anxious about your life because God feeds the birds and clothes the flowers. Okay, So don't be anxious about your life or what we shall eat. And verse 34 says, therefore, Jesus says, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Okay, anxiety, Piper writes, is clearly the theme of this text. It makes the root of anxiety uh, explicit in that verse uh, in verse 30, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and thrown into the oven tomorrow, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Okay? In other words, Jesus says that the root of anxiety is inadequate faith in our Father's future grace. As unbelief gets the upper hand in our hearts, one of the effects is anxiety. The root cause of anxiety is a failure to trust all that God has promised us to be for us in Jesus. So there's, there's one. Now, related to anxiety is, uh, is uh, depression. Okay, depression. And so when we say, when we talk about depression, we might say this. Um, he wants, to, uh, this is Piper again. We might say that the roots of despondency are not simple. Okay, he, he has been talking about this for no, some number of pages. There are, they are complex. So my focus in this chapter is limited. Without denying the complexity of our emotions and their hereditary and physical and family dimensions, what I want to show you is that unbelief in future grace is the root of yielding to despondency. Or to put it another way, unbelief is the root of not making war on despondency with the weapons of God. 
Unbelief lets despondency take its course without a spiritual fight. And it's, uh, you know, lest you think that John Piper uh, is just sort of like on his high horse, he is, he is shared widely that he is a man who has suffered from, like, from very, very bad anxiety sort of in the past and despondency as well. Okay? There's, uh, there's also, um, uh, he also talks about covetousness, okay? covetousness, which is greed. Right? The Tenth Commandment is you shall not covet. He says this, this gives us the key to the definition of covetousness. Covetousness is desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God. The opposite of covetousness is contentment in God. And it says, he then goes for a number of pages and then writes this, it's obvious then that covetousness is exactly the opposite of faith. It's the loss of contentment in Christ so that we start to crave other things to satisfy the longings of our heart. And this are, there's no mistaking that the battle against covetousness is a battle against unbelief and a battle for faith in future grace. Whenever we sense the slightest rise of covetousness in our hearts, we must turn on it and fight it with all of our might using the weapons of faith. Then lastly, uh, I want to talk about impatience because he has a whole chapter about impatience. And this might not seem as, as big a deal as anxiety or depression or just outright greed, but uh, it's something that really speaks to my own heart because I uh, am by sort of sinful nature more of an impatient person. And he says this right at the beginning of the chapter. He writes, impatience is a form of unbelief. It's what we begin to feel when we start to doubt the wisdom of God's timing or the goodness of God's guidance. It springs up in our hearts when our plan is interrupted or shattered. It may be prompted by a long wait in a checkout line or a sudden blow that knocks out half our dreams. I get impatient when I catch red lights going down Manchester. Super annoying. Okay. Uh, the opposite of impatience is not a glib denial of loss. It is a deepening, ripening, peaceful willingness to wait for God in the unplanned place of obedience and to walk with God at the unplanned pace of obedience, to wait in his place and to go at his pace. And the key is faith in future grace. Okay? So I think this is a really helpful book. Uh, I commend it to you very highly, along with Desiring God and, and a number of other John Piper's books. But for us, I want to reiterate as we get back to the text here that the, the woman was healed by faith. Daughter, your faith has made you well. And I think that when we, ha when we can uh, exercise our faith and, uh, and trust in Jesus more and trust in God more for the various different ailments that we suffer from, particularly the spiritual ones, then I think that we can get healthier in that. Because we don't want to be on the sidelines, you know, suffering from these things. We want to become healthy and then help others as well. That is, that is uh, one of the key things. Okay. So we have, uh, we then go from there and right on the heels of his, his saying, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. We have verse 35, real death and a day of the living. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official saying, 
your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Well, clearly they believe that he could have, Jesus could have saved her while she was still sick, but still alive. But now that, he's, that she's dead, why bother? Because death is permanent. Right? Everyone knows that you can be healed of sicknesses, but you can't be healed of death, right? But Jesus, verse 36, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. Okay? Only believe. It's just like what he just told the woman. Your faith has made you well. Now he tells Jairus, only believe. Don't be afraid any longer. Only believe. We don't see anything in the text. I don't want to make an argument from silence, but we don't see anything about the text about Jairus ever doubting. But just that, it just keeps on going. The, the, he just, they just keep on going to the house. And Jesus allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official and Jesus saw commotion, people loudly weeping and wailing. Now, apparently, this has to do with, uh, in some cultures, uh, in, in first century Jewish culture, you would have uh, professional mourners, okay? Professional mourners who would be crying and weeping, right? So that uh, people would know from the outside and also people from the inside would, would also not feel alone in their grief. Uh, you know, there's, uh, there's other cultures in which you have this as well, even to this day. I think of Asian cultures where there are professional mourners. Okay? So, uh, they're, they, they're, apparently these are people who are uh, sort of professional mourners who are loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, Jesus said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. I don't think Jesus meant that literally she's just sleeping. I think he plainly is using a metaphor that is saying that she is actually dead. I think Jesus knows that she is actually dead. But he is saying that she is asleep. And they, the professional mourners, began laughing at him. Okay? And this is our tip-off a little bit, that they're professional mourners and not truly sad over the passing of the little girl. Because they kind of go from putting on this act of weeping and crying and making a big commotion, straight into, straight into just laughing at Jesus. Ha, 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 like this, this guy's an idiot. Okay. So, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was and taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha, kum, Talitha, kum, which is in Aramaic, Okay, which is probably the language that uh, Jesus and everybody else in the area spoke. So he said, Talitha kum, which, and then Mark helpfully translates this for us, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Okay, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and he said that something should be given to her to eat. So, it's, uh, it's just a beautiful story of how Jesus loves us and wants to heal us. And he wants to bring us to life. Right? Death is an enemy. Jesus, in John chapter 11, uh, is infuriated. He is deeply moved from, from within 
when his friend Lazarus died. And he weeps for Lazarus. This is the God of the universe, taken on human flesh, who is overcome with emotion about the death of his friend. It's because death is an enemy, and God is an enemy of God, and God is going to dispense of death forever and ever in the same place where all the demons and Satan and all those who don't trust in Christ will, will go into the lake of fire. This is what the book of Revelation teaches us. The, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is what teaches us that death is an enemy. So Jesus knows that death is an enemy, and here he is putting aside death for the glory of God. Okay, for the glory of God, that it would be, that it would be um, shared. Now, notice that what he's saying here is that he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And it's uh, a little debatable what this exactly might mean, but the point is that at this point, he didn't want that many people to know. He knows that this is going to happen, okay? that, that it's going to get uh, spread all around town. Right? But he gave orders that no one should notice about this. And then also look at what he says to them. He says that something should be given to her to eat. Even in that moment, he is just caring for this little lamb, this little girl. Okay? So that, that is our text. And now how does this relate to Halloween? How does this relate to Reformation Day, as we talked about in our, in our introduction? Well, this passage jumped out at me as I was preparing to preach on this day, October 31st, because Halloween is a day of the occult. It is a day when, as you can see, driving through, that is obsessed with death. There are skeletons, uh, fake skeletons, of course, uh, fake graves. You know, uh, There's all sorts of fake blood everywhere. There's all sorts of scary occultic images, demonic images, all sorts of things. Okay? There's lots of fake blood and, like, and gore. But we, we Christians are people of healing. We are not people of wounds and, and gore. So we stand in opposition to this culture that we have. And, and, you know, the other thing that happened here in the passage is that Jesus is healing real blood, real blood from the hemorrhage that the woman had. And he heals her. Okay? And with Jairus's daughter, he heals her. He brings her back to life. And this isn't just fake death. This is real death. And this is real raising from the death. And this points out to us that we also stand in opposition to our culture as critics of our culture because we are people of life. Okay? Our Savior brings people to life. Our culture in many ways, not just Halloween, but our culture is, in many ways is a culture of death. Okay? Many people glorify violence. They're, we are entertained by death and violence and gore. Okay? There are so many movies so many TV shows, so many video games that are all about violence and death. Okay? Our, our culture is a culture that celebrates death. I mean, even to the point of abortion, many of our fellow countrymen support so-called abortion rights, which is the killing of an unborn human being in the womb. Right? Many of our fellow countrymen support the ability to end a life prematurely, not according to God's timing, but rather according to man's timing, as in physician-assisted suicide. Okay. And that's partially why I entitled my sermon Dia de los Vivos, which 
in Spanish means Day of the Living. It's a play on the name of the holiday in Latin America, uh, mostly in Mexico, Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead. Right? Dia de los Muertos is uh, somewhat closely related to Halloween, um, uh, and it means Day of the Dead, and it's primarily a Mexican holiday, although it's celebrated in other parts of Latin America as well. Uh, Dia de los Muertos has an origin story much like Halloween. The Aztecs and the other local peoples had an end-of-summer celebration where the people would honor the dead by providing food, water, and tools for the soul's difficult journey to the afterlife. Okay, so this happened for centuries and centuries. And then in the 1500s, as the Spanish conquistadores brought their tradition from All Souls Day uh, to the New World, uh, the customs got mixed. So their customs included... Uh, included bringing special bread to the graves of loved ones and covering the graves with flowers and candles to light the dead souls way back home to earth. Okay? And then, so those two traditions mixed, and that evolved into Dia de los Muertos. Okay? But we are people of life, Dia de los Vivos. Okay? Now, Dia de los Muertos and Halloween kind of point also to, this, uh, to, to a concept that we call syncretism. Syncretism is the combining of different religious practices into some sort of, of mixture. Okay? So you saw in my history that I uh, shared with you about uh, All Hallows' Eve that turned into Halloween, how uh, you know, the, the church tried to you know, overtake it, but you know, Christian superstition and other things you know, happened so that now it's, it's no longer Christian. It sort of has Christian-ish overtones to it, but it really doesn't, it's, it's not a Christian holiday, and it, it primarily uh, uh, celebrates the occult. And in our culture, it also primarily celebrates sex, as I mentioned, as, and also money, right, which are, which are the two uh, ancient idols of every human age. Okay? But syncretism also is a theme because, you know, even now we think of, of, of different ways in which we want to guard against syncretism. Right? Syncretism. Uh, for example, there are some people that believe that critical race theory has infiltrated the church and is, is, is uh, making the gospel not the pure gospel, and that would, according to argument, be a form of syncretism. You have other people, uh, largely, I guess I would say, on the, on the other side of the political spectrum, who are more concerned about so-called Christian nationalism, which is syncretism between belief in Jesus, but then also a, like a, a, a very strong form of patriotism. Right? So if you see Jesus and the name of your political leader on the same flag, then maybe you're engaging in you know, some sort of syncretistic form, uh, which we might call Christian nationalism. Right? So these are themes that we want to be aware of uh, and always be checking our own hearts so that we are not led astray, that, that we want to have the scriptures as our highest authority, as we say, sola scriptura. Okay, so how should Christians celebrate Halloween? Okay. Uh, well, there are definitely things that we should not do. There are definitely things that we should not do. And then I think there are other things that are uh, allowable for us in Christian liberty. Uh, I think Al Mohler, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, put it really well in his podcast on Friday. This is what he said. He says, Halloween is at least as a cultural occasion, an opportunity for us to remember that evil spirits are real, 
that the devil, Satan, is real, and that the scripture says Satan will seize every opportunity to trumpet his own celebrity. Perhaps the best response to the devil at Halloween is that offered by the great reformer Martin Luther. Okay, we spoke about him earlier. He said, the best way to drive out the devil, if he will not yield to texts of scripture, is to jeer and flout him, for he cannot bear scorn. Okay? He cannot bear scorn. Well, what you're looking at these days in this cultural celebration is not a scorning of the devil and evil, but rather an attempt to try to commercialize it, to try to domesticate it, and in some ways try to celebrate it. So how does that come down to what Christian parents should and should not do? I want to state this emphatically. You should not, you must not, allow your children nor yourselves to portray in any way the evil forces and the spirits of the dead as attractive or deserving of that kind of attention, much less celebration. There must be no hint of any kind of occultic complication or involvement. I think that's exactly right. Okay, no hint of that. So that's a start. Right? That is definitely what Christians should not do. And then from there, I think we have sort of three choices. And that is, one would be withdraw. Okay? And number two would be kind of go full bore. And then number three would be sort of in the middle, I guess, like some careful engagement. And I think we have uh, Christian liberty to do these things. So as you are preparing for whatever festivities you might or might not uh, be involved in tonight, you know, be thinking about this, right? So you could withdraw and not have anything to do with it, not buy any candy, not get dressed up at all. That is, that I think, according to your conscience, is perfectly allowable. Uh, I wouldn't go full bore, as, as uh, uh, Dr. Moeller says, uh, the, we should have no involvement in anything that is occultic. But I think that you can also, in your Christian liberty, have careful engagement. So our church's approach in the past has been to host a harvest festival or a harvest party. We do it right here on campus. It takes up the whole parking lot and uh, the, the green belt. And what we have done in the past is the whole church comes together and, you know, the parents get the kids dressed up in non-scary costumes. So be a firefighter. That's great. Be an astronaut. An astronaut. Do whatever you want in terms of dressing up. Dressing up is fun. Uh, you guys are going to be in and out workers later, right? Yeah. So, you know, do, uh, you might have an extension collection of hair nets at some future point. But anyway, uh, dress up, have fun. We give out candy. We uh, serve hot dogs and popcorns and drinks and other things like that. We have little carnival games. We have bouncers, right? All of these things. Right? And uh, we just don't do it on Saturday night because that makes uh, it difficult to uh, turn around church on Sunday. And it also, we also tend not to do it on Sunday nights because, you know, once church gets out, there's uh, a lot of hours to go before something like a harvest party can start at 4 o'clock. So we have typically not done it on, on Saturdays and Sundays. And of course, last year, we uh, didn't do it because of COVID, blah, blah, blah. But, the, um, but in the future, in the future, it's obviously too late tonight, but in the future, if this is a ministry that you want to provide for ourselves as a church and also to our local community, I think it can be a great outreach. Uh, come talk to me or one of the other uh, uh, pastors and ministers in the church, and we'll start thinking about how we can use the next 365 days to maybe uh, get something like this planned. October 31st next year is on a Monday, so you know we could we could do this. 
All right, so our church's approach is not to celebrate the occultic at all and not to call anything Halloween, but rather to call it harvest because this is the season of harvest, at least it is in North America, so uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, so that's what we do. Okay, so that's harvest. Uh, my personal family's uh, approach is to do some of those fun things. So we're, when we were having a harvest festival here at church, we would, do, we would participate in that. Our children were, were quite young, and now that they're a little bit older and we don't have the harvest festival, we do other things like we do. We buy candies, and when the, the kids come over and ring the doorbell, we're going to give them candies, tell them how cute they are, et cetera, et cetera. And, then when, uh, and we get our kids dressed up, not in anything uh, over-sexualized or uh, demonic or anything scary like that, but we are going to go out and, and go trick-or-treating uh, with the rest of the community, and, and I think that it's great, okay? And I think that it's fun. But, you know, you may disagree with our particular approach, but like I said, I think we have Christian liberty uh, to do that. Okay, so with that, I want to say again that we are Christians, and therefore we, are, we stand within the culture, we have come out of the culture, but we are still involved in the culture, and so we don't want to be uh, undiscriminating consumers of the culture. We want to do things according to our culture. So, for example, I mean, part of our culture is that we, you know, meet and, and read in English. Okay? We speak in English. That's part of our culture. We play the piano. Not all cultures have pianos. You know, uh, we sing with microphones. Not all cultures have electricity, you know, at their worship services. We meet inside a building. We sit on chairs. Not all... Not all Christians sit on chairs. We sit on padded chairs, right? That's, that's not a, a typical, that's not necessarily typical. So we do things that are part of our culture, and that, those things are not necessarily bad, right? We, we, we do that. Uh, this, is, this is our cultural context. But we don't want to be uh, undiscriminating with this either, okay? So we want to be critics of our culture and, and to approach our culture uh, with our Christian lenses on. And with all of this, we want to understand first and foremost that we are a gospel people. Okay? We've read in here that in the scriptures this morning that Jesus is one who comes for the people and who loves the people. And out of faith, out of belief, he rescues people. He saves people. He heals people. Okay? And that is the good news that we want to share with other people. Okay? Sin is a spiritual condition. Okay? We talked about anxiety and despondency, impatience. And we've talked about physical conditions like the, the woman's hemorrhage. Okay? Sin certainly has a physical component because the scriptures teach us that the wages of sin, the just reward for our sin is death. That is why we all die. That is why we all die. But that is not the end for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because sin ultimately is a spiritual condition. And only Jesus can heal it. Sin, if you want to talk about it in terms of disease, is a cancer of the heart. Not the muscle that pumps blood through our bodies. But our innermost being. Sin is a cancer of the heart. And Jesus is the only physician who could heal it. So on our lips should be the words of the gospel. Those of us that have been saved by Jesus, have been cured by Jesus, should be sharing the good news of Jesus. Right? You would never tell your friend who is dying of some physical form of cancer uh, if you knew the one doctor in the whole world who could cure that cancer, 
you would never withhold that from your friend. And likewise, sin has a 100% mortality rate. It will kill all of us. And there's only one physician who can heal. So don't withhold the good news from yourself, for that matter, but from your friends and your loved ones. But share the good news of Jesus. right? Because he is the only physician that can heal. Okay? Let's spread the good news of the gospel like we believe it. Right? The good news is that we are saved by God's grace alone, sola gratia in the language of the reformers, through faith alone, sola fide, by the atoning work of Christ alone, solus Christus, and we obey the scriptures alone as our highest authority, sola scriptura. And the highest motivation for all that we do is for God's glory alone, soli deo gloria. Because Jesus is not just a man from 2,000 years ago who walked the earth and healed different people and taught us a whole bunch of interesting things. No, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. See, we worship a God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. One God in three persons who are all co-equal in power and glory. And 2,000 years ago, God the Father, in the power of God the Holy Spirit, sent God, the eternal Son, to become a man. Christ Jesus, the Messiah Jesus, the Anointed One Jesus. And he did walk the earth. And he did teach us wonderful things. And he did heal people for the glory of God. And he did bring some people to life. But he himself died. He died a death that he did not deserve so that we could be relieved of a punishment that we do deserve. Everlasting life in hell. And so, he died a death. And then, on the third day, he rose again as a promise of our own resurrection. So the little girl, Jairus' daughter, so, so Jesus' friend, Lazarus, they were raised, they were, they were resurrected in, in a temporary sen sense, and then they, they had to die again, but they will be raised again. Okay? They will be raised again into bodies that will never be sick, that will never have spiritual conditions relating to unbelief of various different degrees. We will never get sick, we will never grow old, we will never die we will be imperishable. Right? These bodies are perishable. You see it all around the neighborhood. The, the uh, makeup and the other things of just perishing stuff, bodies and gore and zombies and whatnot. But when we are resurrected, we are going to be resurrected in imperishable bodies, not zombies. We don't live in a zombie culture. There's so many zombie shows and video games and things like that. We're not zombies. We're raised imperishable. This is part of the good news. Just like a seed has to go into the ground and then perish as a seed, but then grows up into a flower or a fruit tree and is therefore beautiful. That is what we will be. These are perishable bodies. They're growing old. They're, they're, the eyes are growing dim. I have to wear glasses now to read you know, from here. You know, sometimes I can sort of do this if the, if the light is good enough. Yes. Yeah, you know, like literally, it was not readable here, and it's readable there at arm's length. My kids are making fun of me. So I'm, get, I'm, I'm happy to be able to see with clear eyes someday in the Lord's presence. I think that'll be great. 
So that is, that is what, what the gospel is. And, and this good news, like I said, needs to be on all of our lips because we want to be people who are people of life, people who are healing, uh, who are people of healing. People like Ryan Richards uh, preached to us last week. We want to be photosynthetic people. We want to be people of the light and not of darkness. We live in a dark world. Right? We want to be photosynthetic people. In this perishing world, let us be people of life, sharing the life-giving good news of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and the Scriptures as our highest authority, Sola Scriptura. And in this world that celebrates blood and gore, let us be people who celebrate the blood and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and rejoice in being born again and having the gift of everlasting life, the free gift of God not the wages of death, the free gift of God. Okay. So on that note, on the note of, you know, ironically, celebrating uh, blood and death, let us then take our communion, right? Because Jesus' death, not our death, but Jesus' death is what gives us life. And on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and gave thanks. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. So now we unwrap plastic and then we take the uh, wafer, which is hardly bread, but anyway, it's somewhat digestible. And we take it and then we, we declare Jesus' death by taking this bread. Okay, so let's take that together. And then not to be ironic, but you know we also symbolized Jesus' blood, the blood that sealed the covenant, God's promises for us. And we take the juice. So let's take the juice that symbolizes Jesus' blood together. For as often as we eat the bread and drink the juice, drink the wine, we declare the Lord's death until he comes in power and glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, God, for your word this morning. We thank you, God, that you have given us life and that you have given it through your son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you, Lord God, for the courage of the woman uh, who was hemorrhaging. And we thank you, God, that we can give you glory that she was healed. We thank you, God, for the courage and the faith of Jairus and, uh, and that you, um, in your power, in your glory, and in your grace, you raised up his daughter to life. On that note, Lord, that is what we pray for. We pray for our children. We pray, God, that while they uh, might be spiritually dead, uh, if they haven't received you as Savior yet, that, they, that you would have mercy on them and that you would make them born again by your Holy Spirit and that you would bring them to spiritual life and that just like Jairus' daughter, you would continue uh, nourishing and feeding her and giving her uh, good things to eat because man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And we thank you, God, that you have given us your word as our daily bread. We thank you, God, that we have this place to worship. I pray for my, uh, my fellow believers here in this room and listening online, that as we go out into the world, into the culture, especially this evening, that we would be people of life, that we would be people of light, that we would be people um, that, of, of healing. Uh, receive these words, uh, these words and songs of worship uh, as we continue. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things.